Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. We are recording this in early February 2022 um, at a time of escalating tensions in Eastern Europe focused um, along the border of Russia with Ukraine. Um, and Dominic, it's it's fascinating, isn't it, if you have any interest in early medieval history? Because um, last summer, Vladimir Putin, or at least someone pretending to be Vladimir Putin... <laughs> wrote an essay about the historical background to this. 5,000 um, words, Tom, I think it was. 5,000 words. And he, he went back, uh, obviously, through the history of the Soviet Union, back through the emergence of the Russian Empire. But he ended up going all the way back to the 10th century and the emergence of the Kingdom of the Rus. Yeah. Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians, Vladimir Putin, I put that slightly in inverted commas, wrote, are all descendants of ancient Rus, which was the largest state in Europe. Slavic and other tribes across the vast territory were bound together by one language, economic ties, the rule of the princes of the Rurik dynasty, and after the baptism of the Rus, the Orthodox faith. Um, and I guess two things leap out from that. One is Putin's argument that because there was this great empire, this great kingdom of the Rus, covering a vast expanse of territory. Therefore, everybody who was, you know, lives in lands that constituted that kingdom properly should be part of Russia, I guess is the, the kind of implicit argument. Um, and the other argument is, it's, it's one from silence, where he, he, um, he talks about Slavic and other tribes, but he notably does not mention <laughs> anyone coming from Scandinavia, which is very much the sense that I have, that the foundations of the Rus kingdom, this kind of emergent kingdom in uh, in 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 what becomes russia and and ukraine um were actually vikings well this is a massively controversial issue isn't it tom so this week's subject is the um the vikings in the east which is this impossibly kind of romantic violent exotic exciting murky subject but it's also politically very controversial so in the soviet union um there were massive arguments and there was a sort of the real movement in the Soviet Union to say that basically, okay, there were some Scandinavians, i.e. Vikings there, but they weren't very important and their cultural imprint was soon kind of, you know, it was, buried. It was lost, buried by Slavic traditions and Slavic culture. And we don't owe anything to these to these Scandinavians, yeah. basically. Yeah, so, so as I understand it, that argument first developed in the 18th century against the backdrop of Peter the Great's kind of defeat of the Swedes. Yeah. So obviously the Russians then didn't want to think that the, you know the foundation of their their kingdom was was Swedish, and then again isn't it right that um, it was it was the Nazi invasion that really turbocharged exactly. this idea because Hitler said that without you know the Norsemen going in that the Russians would be living like rabbits or something. Exactly. So it's a sort of um, there's a, obviously a, a Germanic aspect to to kind of Norse culture. They're very closely related, and so in the 20th century it became really important for Stalin to sort of say, you know, no, we don't know. I think because the story is often told with kind of Viking overlords, as we'll go on to describe, Viking overlords, in inverted commas, civilizing the Slavic tribes. And obviously, if you are a, a very keen Slavophile, if you're a kind of Slav nationalist, 
that's very offensive. The idea that you needed to be civilized by kind of Vikings in horned helmets, which they obviously didn't wear um, in their longboats and whatnot. But of course, I mean, if you're if you uh, come from Britain, actually, the perspective you have on the Vikings is that this civilizing process, by by definition, I mean, is incredibly brutal. That um, that, that that acknowledging the influence that Vikings, you know, have on ninth, tenth century Europe, whether it's in Britain or whether it's in um, you know the lands of the of the Dnieper and the Volga. Um, this isn't necessarily a civilizing process. It's a process of, of kind of conquest and brutalization. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the really interesting thing is that these, these two things are happening in parallel. So everybody, think when they think of the Vikings, I mean, basically pretty much every primary school in Britain, as far as I can tell, is the Vikings at some point, kids dress up in Viking outfits and they put on horned helmets and they learn about dragon proud longboats and stuff. But they almost always study it. In terms of a story that the Vikings first pitch up at Lindisfarne, they sat in the monastery and then they're constantly attacking England and France and Spain. And, you know, Alfred burns his cakes. Uh, there are a series of battles. The Vikings said, you know, it's all the West and then expeditions to Greenland and Iceland. But actually, you know, a lot of Viking historians, Neil Price, for example, would, would say actually what the Vikings are doing in the West is a copy they're copying what they've already started doing in the East. And it's the story in the East that is that is more exotic, more exciting, and also, crucially, I would say, more lucrative. There's so much money for a Viking to, to yep. make sailing to the East rather than to the West. And, yep. and you could argue that in the long run, couldn't you, Tom? Creating Russia is quite, quite a big, <laughs> yeah. big and thing. And Ukraine. <laughs> yeah, and Ukraine. Right, well, <laughs> the issue of which of those can lay claim it's a bit like the Greek, the argument we had in Alexander the Great podcast about Greece and Macedonia and North Macedonia, as it's now called, fighting over the legacy of Alexander the Great, isn't it? Yeah, because this Russia stuff really Ukraine. matters. Yeah, they both see themselves as the heirs of the of the Kievan Rus civilization. Yeah, so we've we've um, I mean, the Vikings are such a great topic. Um, we've both I, I wrote about them in Millennium. I wrote about the Vikings in the East. You were writing a. Children's book about the Vikings right now, aren't you? I'm so indeed. you're absolutely yeah. kind of immersed in this. Yeah. It's such a great topic, um, and we've we've done one episode already on the the Norse epics, which essentially took us from Iceland to Greenland to Vinland and the New World. But even in Iceland, they are writing epics about um, what the Vikings are getting up to That's in right. the lands of yeah. the East, um, going down the rivers um, to, to Baghdad. The the capital of the greatest empire on the face of the earth to Miklagard, the golden city of Caesar, Constantinople. And as you say, it's, it's a story um, that is very, very thrilling because you have the same, you know, obviously the idea of, of taking ship and discovering North America. I mean, that's an incredible story, but so also is the idea that, that people are going from Scandinavia and kind of pitching up in Baghdad, yeah. you know, or even further afield. I mean, it's, it, it is an astonishingly romantic narrative well the bit before we get into the the um the sort of the narrative of it i mean the best example of that and the one that most certainly british listeners maybe english-speaking listeners will know everybody knows the story of 1066 certainly in, in britain they do the battle of hastings harold and william but obviously there's a battle before that against a guy called harold hardrada um who comes over from norway to try and claim the english throne and the life of harold hardrada is this whole business in microcosm yeah you know he had been in 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 Norway, he ends up going to Kiev. He ends up going to Constantinople and commanding the imperial bodyguard. He prob may have gone to Sicily. He may have gone to 
um, the Holy Land, you Wolf know, this, Dragon, this incredible Mary the Princess, well, these incredible adventures, many of which are unquestionably true because they're backed up in kind of you know Byzantine sources. So, I mean, you think about that life. He's had a, he had a more interesting, well traveled life than probably most of our listeners, <laughs> certainly <laughs> than us. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, so so we've got um, from Mary Kirk Alves. Um, who asked very simply, why were the Vikings going east? Was it more of an expedition or a conquest? So obviously the ge- the geography of Scandinavia, kind of, a, you know, the, the, the ancients thought of it as an island. They, they didn't realise it was a peninsula. So you can take ship and go west across the North Sea or, or into the Baltic up the, the Gulf of Finland. Um, and beyond the Gulf of Finland lies the vast expanse, basically, of Eurasia. And the Vikings knew it as, as Sweden the Great, Sweden, the cold, a land of, of giants, of dwarves, of dragons, of men with mouths between their nipples who never spoke but only barked. So an, an intimidating place, but yeah. a place that, as it turns out, with incredible courage, with incredible fortitude, with incredible daring, can lead you to the richest lands on the face of the planet, the lands yeah, of, a- of, of, of the Caliphate and of the Byzantine Empire. Yeah, that's right. And I think... Um... If you think about the geography, so if you live in Norway, if you live on you know, one of the fjords or something, when you look out, you see the North Sea and beyond it, very rich um, kind of farmlands of England and the monasteries of Ireland and so on. And and that's the way you go. But obviously, if you live in Sweden, you're you're looking out east, southeast. And the first thing you see is an island called Gotland. Where Have you been to Gotland, Tom? I have. Have you? I, yeah, I have. I went there on holiday a couple of years ago. Absolutely amazing place. Beautiful island. Fantastic churches where Rachel Morley would enjoy it. Um, but also coin hoards. These incredible hoards of coins. Thousands and thousands of Arabic dirhams um, that have come up the rivers. So basically, what you would do if you were an entrepreneurial 8th century Swede, you would go to Gotland, and that's the sort of staging post where you maybe find people for your crew or you sign on with somebody. And then obviously the place to go from, I mean, you know, England or France, they're not really on your radar. What you do is you keep going across the Baltic, and there, as you say, you get the mouths of these rivers, and you know that somewhere at the end of that river is one of the richest cities on earth, Miklagard, Constantinople. And beyond it, it's all the wealth of the of the caliphate and you have direct, I think there are two things crucially that you have if you're Scandinavian that they, they will buy from you. One of them is furs, which you can kind of pick up on the way. And the other crucially is slaves. So this is a real, yeah. a massive slave trading enterprise. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely is. Um, and I think that, um, I mean, let's, so how do you get there if you're on, on, on you know, if you're in Sweden, so there's, um, there's the, uh, there's Gotland, as you say, and there's this place called Birka, which is, um, I think just west of of Stockholm now. Been to Birkenton, and um, it, it's as close to a town as you get in kind of early ninth century Scandinavia. Um, and and from these kind of centres, you can head eastwards up the Gulf of Finland. Um, and there's the Volkov River, yeah. Uh, and there's there's a town, um, Staraja Laduga. Yeah, Staraya Ladoga, Tom. Is that how you pronounce it? Your Russian is shocking. Yeah, okay. I, 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 so, so, um, so that's this, a is, sort this of, is a kind of, well, it's not Wild West, is it? It's Wild East. Well, it's, Neil it's, Price has a lovely thing in his book, The Children of Ash and Elm, where he says it's basically Deadwood. So, um, <laughs> right. 
you know, it's sort of saloons. It's but I think a couple of people. He's not the only person to have made that American analogy because Tom Shippey in his book Laughing Till I Die about the Vikings, he has a nice section about how um, he, he says, you know, the way you th- to answer Mary Kirk's question, it's not really like the kind of raids on Lindisfarne and stuff. He says the way to think about it is about trappers and traders in North America yeah, with fur. I mean, with fur, you know, yeah, the, the parallel exactly. is paddling down these rivers, and there are sort of there are indigenous people, tribes on either side. Sometimes they'll trade with them. Sometimes they'll kind of fight each other, and that's sort of that's the and even the topography. You know, it's very heavily wooded, lots of rivers, lakes, and yeah. things. So you start off in Storia Ladiga, and you kind of. And that's kind of expanding as time goes. And I think that's found in about 750, 753 or something. And then and then you go south, don't you? You pick your river and well, you kind I, of... Yes, because what, what, the, what the, the Vikings are bringing is the technology that enables them to navigate these rivers. Um, and, and that's evident, I think, even in the name, right? I mean, that's... So um, there was a, a message from um, Tapani Simajoki, friend of the show, uh, a, a Finn... Um, and he says an interesting tidbit on the linguistics of the East Vikings and Finland as the brackish meeting point of East and West. The Finnish Sweden, Ruotsi, is probably derived from the same root as Rus, Ruslagen. And Rus, so Ruslagen, Rus is, is rowing. Yeah. Lagen is kind of, kind of the band, isn't it? So the land of the rowers. Um, yeah. And that idea of ships going down rivers, people rowing, um, often against the current, with the current. Um, and the ships are sufficiently, you know, they're built so that they can negotiate quite shallow waters and they're sufficiently light that, you know, you get to a lake, you need to, to go across to the head of a river, you can carry the ship. Yeah, but that's where also where the slaves come in very handy. So this constant issue of the portage, I think, is the uh, technical yeah. term, where you basically you get to the end of your bit of river or you get to the point where you need to cross over, and basically you need to be able to get out, either semi-dismantle your ship or or the ship is light enough to, to for you to carry it. Or your slaves to carry it. Or your slaves. Well, this is where the slaves, basically your cargo are carrying it for you. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of genius, if you like, the sort of horrific genius of the business model. That you're trading human beings who are doing a lot of the work for you, and so and so, obviously there's there's incredibly you know you're very vulnerable if you're having to carry a ship, you know up mountains and you know where the rapids are or uh, you know through forests or whatever. So uh, you're, you're you're very vulnerable, and so that that's why along the length of of these lakes, these rivers, at certain key points, you start to get more and more kind of forts really. So Novgorod, yeah. I mean it's it, you're the you're, you're the Russian speaker here, Dominic. That, that means <laughs> new new fort, doesn't it? Yeah. So that, that so that appears on um, uh, Lake Ilmen. That's right, and they called it Holmgard, I think, didn't they? Um, the um, the Rus themselves, little the little fort, and it's sort of I think a lot of these forts are kind of a very North American style. They're kind of made of logs, aren't they? So everything in Novgorod is is made of wood. Yeah, everything, even the kind of you know, rather than paper, they're writing on kind of bark and things. Um, so, so they're that? not. So to answer, go back to Mary Kirk's question: Is it is it a conquest? I don't think they think of it as a conquest because they're not interested in, you know, it's not a risk where they're interested in kind of capturing lots of land. What they're interested in is the route, is the river, and making money. And yeah. they establish the forts as kind of trading stations, basically. And you can imagine the kind of, I think uh, Neil Price in his book has a stuff about you know the scene, people drinking. 
uh, probably lots of time. <laughs> Tinkling on the piano. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> sassy, sassy, madams. sassy bar tarts. Yeah. yeah. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. But that's the sort of atmosphere. And obviously that's quite cosmopolitan in the sense that there are lots of these Scandinavians who are mostly, I think, Swedes, because that's obviously where, where, where you come from. Um, but there are also undoubtedly at this stage, lots of Slavs. So even at this stage, I think you've got the yeah. mix that, that becomes Russia, the mix of Scandinavian and Slav. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, so Novgorod is, it, it's a place, I mean, it's very like a kind of Western. So you get lots of, of celebrated figures in the Norse epics, you know, when they're down on their luck, they, they go there and they kind of recruit men, you know, people to, to go off to, yeah. to Britain or, you know, attack Denmark or whatever. But at the same time, obviously from Novgorod, you can cross the lake and you can then either uh, get the Dniper, which will take you down to the Black Sea and from the Black Sea to Constantinople, Miklagard, the great city, uh, or to the Volga, which will take you to the Caspian Sea and from the Caspian Sea to Baghdad or yeah. to lands even kind of, you know, in, in, in Central Asia, the Silk so they, Road and so They attack on. Azerbaijan at one point. Maybe yeah, it comes no, to that It's kind of incredible. Yeah, incredible. Um, so, so Novgorod is the kind of, I guess, the, the, the meeting point of, of Scandinavia, Dniper and the Volga. Yeah. Um, and, if, and if you're going the sort of the, the Western route, as it were, the route down to Miklagard, the next stop is what becomes Smolensk. So, I mean, these are, you know, if you think of a lot of kind of well-known Rus Western Russian towns and cities, they have routes along this kind of route or, or indeed even further east along the Volga. So the, the Smolensk is a place called, um, seems to be a bit, begun as a place called Nezdovo, and that's the confluence of the Dnieper and the Svinets River. And again, you know, it's the same sort of Wild West kind of atmosphere, but but it's like the, the, the tension is rising because you're about to approach, as you keep going south, you're going to approach these rapids, these very exciting rapids <laughs> yes. that bizarrely we know about from this incredible source. You, you must have, yeah. have a, a Byzantine emperor, no less. Yeah, who wrote a handbook. <laughs> yes, for his son, Constantine yeah. Seventh. So he wrote a, the purple. He wrote, a, he wrote, yeah, Porphyrogenitus. He writes a, a foreign policy guide for his son, Romanus. Basically, this is how you handle all our neighbours. I mean, just an incredible kind of almost like a policy document to have survived. And in it, he says, "So you know the Rus. Well, this is the this is the deal with them." And he basically explains, sets out the whole of the route. So he says they they have these special um, boats called what are they called um, monoxala single keel boats. So they're basically he says at this point they're in kind of disposable boats, kind of little kind of dugout canoes, um, they all go together in a big flotilla, he says. And and by this point, you're in what is now Ukraine. So you're going down the river through the center of what's now Ukraine. And the river's only navigable in the summer. And basically, you keep having to get out. And as the rapids approach, the slaves will carry your boats for you. And the rapids all have excellent names do you know all the names of these rapids yeah they're terrifying aren't they and they and, and there's one of them appears on an inscription actually in Gotland, i think does it mm. i didn't know that um one of them's called the drinker esupi the drinker galandri the yeller ifor the ever fierce leanti the laugher so on and so forth so they're sort of these weird names for all these different rapids and they navigate all them but by the point at which they're coming down they're, they're now they're coming close to what are more like 
states and kind of confederations of tribes. Pechenegs. So there's the Pechenegs. They were terrifying. Who are, they're kind of nomad. They've just vanished from history now, haven't they? I don't know. I mean, I think they became Tatars or something. But they. But you wouldn't are, want to be caught by them. They're nomads. Well, they will. They will um, cut your head you. off, and they yeah. will um, make it into a goblet, won't they? Don't yeah. they do that later? As we'll discover later in the show, it's they very, very to, blood um, meridian. Um, so they'll do that, and there's also the Khazars, who are incredibly interesting. Yes, um, yes. So they so so I I, th- I mean so that they are further east, and they're basically a kind of buffer between the Slavs and the Caliphate. Um, so they're they're nomadic Turkic people, but they amazingly um, convert to Judaism, which is a distinctive thing to do. Well, they're the world's only Jewish state, aren't they? Between the the the, the Roman takeover of the Holy Land and the establishment of the state of Israel in the late nineteen forties, I mean, which is just an incredible thing to be. And why did they pick Judaism, Tom? Well, the story is, and and this this again will turn up later when we talk about the conversion of Kiev to um, to Christianity. Uh, the leader of the Khazars sends messages to um, to all the various powers to send him a, um, a, a Christian monk, uh, a Jewish rabbi, um, a Muslim scholar to go and persuade him. And it's the the Jewish um, it's the rabbi who who wins out. And this was the uh, the subject of a, a fabulous novel. Um, I think written in early eighties by a guy called Milorad Pavic, a Serbian novelist called Dictionary of the Khazars, which is um, it's kind of a magical realist novel. Very good, I highly recommend it. And so the the, the Khazars seem to, in a, a weird way, have become Jewish. But it sort of makes sense, right? Because they're stuck between two rival powers. Yeah, a Christian Byzantine and a Muslim empire. empire. Yeah. So they, so, whichever they where they jump, they're doomed. So they jump a third way, and it kind of works for them. And I think that um, t- to begin with, the, the, it's the caliphate that is really the focus of, of the energies of the Rus rather than Byzantium, because it's, it's an absolute peak. You know, we've, so we've got um, lots of questions about silver. So Stefan Jensen, himself a Viking, why are there <laughs> such enormous amounts of Arabian silver coins in Viking graves a- a- across Scandinavia? Um, it, it's the volume of silver that is really attracting them. Um, and so to begin with, I think the you know, they're going down the Volga much more than they're going down towards the Black Sea. So they're going towards the Caspian. So they have to negotiate with um, with the Khazars. And some of them definitely do seem to have ended up in Baghdad. Well, they, they, um, they're they they're drawn by the silver, but also by the slave markets, right? There's an inexhaustible demand for slaves in Baghdad. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, obviously they are bringing slaves who are Slavs, but they also may well be bringing slaves that they've captured um in, in some of their other raids further north. So there are lots of children's books. I mean, there's a wonderful book by Rosemary Sutcliffe uh, called Blood Feud, where it's the story of a, a boy, I think it is, who is captured in Wessex. He They take him to Dublin, to the great slave markets there, and he ends up, one way or another, he ends up going down the rivers and he ends up in Constantinople. Um, but obviously he could have ended up in Baghdad. And, you know, it's it's not impossible by any means, to, to think of quite a lot of, you know, substantial number of Scandinavian, well, not po- possibly Scandinavians themselves, English, Franks, Irish, Slavs going down all that way. Well, I think, I think it is mainly Slavs. And, and the evidence for that is obviously the fact that we have the word slave. I mean, it, it, it's absolutely imprinted on the English language uh, and many other European languages as well. I didn't, have you read, uh, I've come across um, Michael McCormick's book, Origins of the European Economy, 
which <laughs> I which, haven't. It's a really, I, I mean, it's a massive book. And his argument essentially is that the caliphate uh, in all, you know, so not just the Abbasid caliphate, but the the, the Muslim lands of North Africa um, and, and Spain as well, are so economically advanced ahead of Europe that all that Europe can provide really is slaves. And and so uh, the, the, the main provider of slaves is um, uh, Otto the Great, for instance, friend of the show. So he is, you know, they are harvesting vast, vast numbers of Slavs and they're being transported through Europe, down through Spain to North Africa. What the Vikings are doing is that they are going to the richest, you know, the heartland of yeah. the Islamic world and going to, to Baghdad. And it's that that opens up, you know, the vast kind of stream of silver that they're then able to bring back. Yeah. Um, and and it's 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 really that 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 um, explains the rhythms of uh, Viking campaigns in the West as well, because it's when the silver mines in uh, in Yemen uh, and in Central Asia dry up that they then start to refocus their attention on 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 England, which by this point also has a kind of very silver based economy. Yeah, um, and also because it's easier in some ways. I mean, if you can get silver flooding in. That's that's more immediate than getting land. I mean, land is great in England if you can get it. Um, but you're right. I think I think we have to see the east and western things sort of in parallel. That obviously, while well, the when when the, whenever that eastern route is kind of cut off for some reason, or there's a diminution in the trade, then you see a kind of intensification of the sort of western attacks. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Well, um, but it's just it's just so, so you get that the Samanid emirs in Central Asia discover these vast silver mines uh i think in kind of 890s so um end of the ninth century and over the, f- the the first half of the 10th century silver is flooding in from there and that of course is the period where in the west you know the english state is able to to construct itself yeah. the fight back against the vikings so alfred presumably, and his, yeah, and his successors presumably because actually there's so much money to be made in the east that that becomes the main focus of attention. Yeah. Um, and then after about 965, the silver mines in the East dry up. And so uh, Berka gets abandoned towards the end of the 10th century. And you start to get Vikings moving back towards England, Ethelred the Unready and Svein Fortbeard and so on. So I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, we tend not to think of that, you know, the, 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 the rhythms of the, you know, the emergence yeah. of the English state and then the return of the Vikings to a degree, is being conditioned by the availability of silver in the East. Okay, we'll just take a quick break, Tom, and we'll come back after the ads. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking about the Vikings in the East, and we've got all kinds of, um, frankly, gruesome stuff to come. Now, talking of gruesome stuff, Tom... um, (laughs) We re- we are very responsive, as the public know, to um, popular opinion. And the, and well, we're, the, we're, we're the people's podcast. Aren't we, we are the people's podcast. Now, last week, we released two podcasts about the trial and execution of Charles I, and they provoked a remarkably intense reaction. Did you see some of the uh, They uh, want to say intemperate. I, I don't know whether intemperate is the word. <laughs> uh, robust, some would well, say. I, I would say that the, re- the robust in response came from one person in particular who we actually name checked at the start of the episode capel loft who um had already got crossed with us during the world cup of kings and queens because we hadn't included charles the first uh in our list he had form 
he, he had started four. his own rival World Cup, I believe. Yes, in which uh, Charles I did very well. Yeah, because um, he rigged the tournament. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> very Stuart behaviour. Yeah, very Stuart behaviour. Uh, um, anyway, so so um, Capital Loft uh, responded to our episodes by saying, um, and this was a tweet he put out, just made a second attempt to listen to the rest of history on the trial of Charles, King and Martyr, but once again had to stop in anger every lazy bit of long since debunked Puritan and Whig propaganda is trotted out without challenge, falsehood and half-truth abound. Vile. <laughs> Vile. I mean, that's strong. So um, there was then a huge discussion. So I went to bed having just seen that and got up the next morning to discover about several hundred messages, people attacking each other about Charles I. Um, so Ted Valance, Professor Ted Valance, who I've known for 29 <laughs> years, was, was a guest. I knew him when he was a teenager, would you believe? And... Um, uh, Capel Loft said to me, it pains me that as a fan of Baldwin and Joseph Chamberlain, you can be so wrong on 20th, 17th century politics, though at least you're not quite as dead to all morality and decency as that hellhound Valance. <laughs> so, I mean, to be fair, he's nailed Ted pretty well. <laughs> he is a hellhound. He is. <laughs> so um, anyway. But, but Dominic, Tom, I mean, we've we've done, um, I mean, we've done podcasts on all kinds of things. We've done um, fascism and communism and Mohammed and all kinds of stuff. And who would have thought that... Um, it would be the character of Charles I that would... Charles King of Martyr, as Cape of calls him. So anyway, this is by way of saying that um, because we are the People's Podcast and because we are responsive to deeply held beliefs, um, we have invited Capel Loft onto the members' uh, podcast that goes out to uh, the Wangs, as we like to call them, the, the <laughs> members of the Rest of History Special Club. Um, and that will be going out uh, tomorrow, Tuesday. Well, indeed. So if you are, if, if you're a member, you've got that to look forward to. Um, and we'll be debating with him about uh, discussion, our treatment of Charles I and what he sees, I think, is the cancer of wiggery yeah. that has eaten into the rest is history. Uh, if you're not a member of the rest is history club, this is your opportunity, basically. You know, you don't want to miss out on the big fight. Um, it's, it's massive. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the big sports event of 2022 so far. And you can sign up to that on uh, restishistorypod.com. Excellent. So back to the Vikings. Who were not Whigs. Definitely not Whigs. Definitely immune from the taint of Whiggery, I would say, the Vikings. Not possibly well even more immune to the taint of Whiggery than Capel Loft and yeah. that is saying something. So so one last question on this um issue of contacts with Baghdad, Tom. Um Diogo Morgado has an excellent question. Vikings and Arabs, clash of civilizations or trade based contacts. Does Islam have any influence? in the decline of Norse polytheism? Well, I don't have an answer to the second half. The first half, I would say, not really a clash of civilizations. I mean, we have some really, really interesting things written by Arabs about the Norse and saying, you know, they're, they're very dirty or they, they have weird customs and so on. Maybe we'll come to that. But I would say it's more trade, fascination, um, exchange and so on. But you all have your own answer. What do you think? Well, I th- I, um, the, the question of whether visitors to the, to the caliphate you know, are influenced by Muslim. Do, do do they become, do some of them become Muslim? Do they bring Muslim brides back? I mean, the evidence, so there's there's um the grave of a woman in Sweden was found who had a, a ring with um kind of invocation of Allah. Yes. On the ring. Yeah. Uh, and various textiles have been found again with kind of uh, Quranic phrases woven into it. Um, the woman herself seems to have, have come from the Islamic world. Whether you, I mean, whether whether the fact that you have Quranic 
messages on your robes means that you've become a Muslim. I- I'm not sure about that. So because it's surely it, unlikely. Surely it's just well, a high status, luxurious. Well, because famously also there's a Buddha was found, wasn't it, in the yeah. grave. And um, that doesn't imply they're Buddhists. And they're a kind of the crazier from, a, you know, from Ireland. Um, they're, they're basically kind of garnering loot. But I would have thought it wasn't beyond the bounds of possibility that um, the caliphs were kind of sending missionaries to try and convert these, some of these barbarians. That's what they were, they were doing. Um, so who knows? Who knows? It's, it's a very kind of interesting question. But Tom, that raises a really, really interesting set of stories. So we do know that there are lots of people who are, you know, Arabs and or Arab messengers, envoys and so on. Ibn Rusta, for example, Miskawaya. Um, that I'm sure my, my Arabic's not quite that good. Uh, Ibn Kurdabhib. Um, and, um, yeah. and apologies to listeners for the, uh, Tom doesn't have the courage to do these fantastic Arabic voice, um, voices, but I do. Uh, but the most famous one is Ibn Fadlan. So Ibn Fadlan um, is, I mean, this is the story that basically anyone who's interested in the Vikings in the East is familiar with. He is a an envoy stroke missionary who is sent by the Abbasid Caliph al-Muqtadir to go to the Volga, to the people who live on the Volga, who are Turkic people called the Bulgars. So they're not the kind of Slav Bulgarians that we think of now. They are, they're living on the Volga in what's now Tatarstan. And Ibn Fadlan has been sent there basically as, as, a, as, a, as a diplomat, stroke missionary, to build him a mosque. And when he gets there, he finds a load of Vikings. Vikings, yeah. yeah. And he's quite struck by them, isn't he? I mean, he's quite impressed by them. He says they're as tall as date palms, blonde and ruddy. And he's very impressed they've got by their weapons and their kit and stuff. But he's also, they are the filthiest of Allah's creatures. They do not wash after shitting or peeing, nor after sexual intercourse, and do not wash after eating. They are like wayward donkeys. Yeah. So he sort of thinks of them in a very, you know, they're barbarians, basically, to him, aren't they? They are, in a kind of weird way, noble savages, I suppose. Impressive tall, strong, self-confident and so on, but also weird and a bit unsettling. And he's obviously a really interesting guy because he's curious. So he says he hears that one of their chiefs has died yeah, and they're going to have this massive funeral. He's like, oh, can I come and... He makes the worst decision of his life. (laughs) No, it's an amazing decision. He says, I'd like to come and watch. Yes. uh, So so, um, in, in Baghdad, when the Vikings turn up, they pretend to be Christian, um, and they have to do that because because if you're a follower of the book, then uh, you, you you know you you can get in um, by paying a, a, a kind of tax. Whereas if you're a pagan, you can't. The thing that's interesting about this um, this this burial is that it's unapologetically pagan. You know, there's no pretense about it being Christian whatsoever. Um, and the fascination of that for archaeologists is, you know, when they dig up the ship burials or whatever, and they find kind of various dismembered animals and um the skeletons of women and things inside it it's very difficult you know you've got the uh you've got the hardware but you don't have the software ibn fidland's account provides the software that otherwise we simply wouldn't have yeah and also he he provides quite good ammunition for people who say when these guys went east they were still very much scandinavians because this is a scandinavian an identifiable scandinavian funeral ritual that is taking place, I mean, God knows how many hundreds of miles away on the Volga in what is now the absolute kind of Russian heartland. And he, how long does it take, Tom? Does it take uh, 10 days, doesn't it? It takes 10 days to get ready for this funeral. I mean, it is the most colossal blowout, basically. 
presided over by a sinister old woman called the Angel of Death. I saw she was a witch, thick-bodied and sinister. <laughs> it's a super fat line. He's, 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 he's fattest, unfortunately. And, and barbarianist. <laughs> yeah, he's not impressed by the angel of death at all. I mean, frankly, with your name like that, you're asking for, oh, for well, disobliging commentary. But, so, it, yeah, I mean, it's um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't want, I think, to be a female slave um, in the vicinity of the angel of death. Because you, you wouldn't, that is no. for, that is for sure. So someone has to accompany uh, the dead Viking chief to the afterlife, and so um, they ask for a volunteer. And actually, interest doesn't have to be a woman; it could be could be a, a, a slave yeah. boy as well. But it's but it's a girl who volunteers. So they've lined them all up, haven't they? And there's people. So the guy's ship has been propped up on the shore with with wood. Yeah, his kind prophets- of half half buried. Is that right? I think, I think something like that. Is it half buried? His- so, um, um, yeah. So it's half kind of they've 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 heaped earth over half of it so that you then go in. That's right. Yeah. But the other half is outside. They've 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 divvied up his the the dead guy's fortune three ways. So a third of it is spent on booze, unbelievably, <laughs> which is great, isn't it? A third of it it's is spent like kind on kind of death duties on 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 special kind of funeral gear. So on other funeral stuff like his burial clothes, and then the remaining third is split up among his his heirs, basically. Um, so they've there's this massive kind of festival atmosphere, and they get the slaves together and they say, "Which of you volunteers?" And Ibn Fadlan watches, kind of fascinated. He's got an interpreter with him who's explaining what's going on, and this girl steps forward. She's a teenager, I think. It's yeah. pretty clear she's a teenager. Whether she is coerced or whether she steps forward voluntarily is unclear. I would say. Tom, but, but she, she, um, having volunteered, she's then treated like a kind of princess, and she gets given slaves. She has clothes and jewels. She and gets all clothes sorts. and jewels, and she gets given kind of drugs, I think. And there's kind of weird thing where she she goes to something that that looks like a door frame. That's on the last day, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so on the last day, the tenth day, they set up a sort of a bed on the deck of the boat with this guy's presumably <laughs> by now. In quite putrid, rank. rotting corpse <laughs> yeah. in bed, dressed in these fancy clothes, and they lay out a huge feast around his body. Then they bring out the girl. The girl by now has been clearly she's been very heavily drugged and given booze and stuff. Um, then they bring a dog to the ship and they cut a dog in half. The dog in half, and they throw both halves of the dog on board. I mean, so strange. Um, they put all the guys' weapons in the cabin. They tear the heads off some chickens. Yeah, Ibn Fadlan at this point is thinking, God, <laughs> this was a very bad decision." But the, to the go and watch bit, this funeral, the the door frame. Yeah, they lift she, her up. Uh, they she, lift her up, and she says she can see her father and her mother. Then they lift her up again, and she sees all her family. And then the third time, she says that she sees her master in the afterworld, and it's green. And it's beautiful, and there are all kinds of yeah men. Then they and, they and take and off her, her jewels, and they she walks onto the deck of the ship. But this is a weird detail. She walks on the raised palms, so she's being held up in a sort of you know mosh pit style scenario. They hoist her onto the ship. Um, she sings a, a leave taking song, and then they make her drink two big kind of flasks of of beer, I assume, or yeah. or something. Um, and then at this point, so even Fadline at this point, his story, which is pretty dark, becomes genuinely very dark because he says at this point she's confused and she's crying out and she doesn't want to carry on or whatever. 
But the angel, yeah, the angel of death at this point grabs her and sort of they drag. What do they do? They drag her into a little cabin. At this point, everybody's outside drumming, beating on their shields, beating on their shields. It's such a terrible scene to to drown out the screams, right? That that she's giving, and then four of the men hold her down, and two others strangle her, while the angel of death is stabbing her with a knife. Even Fadline is watching all this. And one of the guys standing next to him says, God, you have terrible rituals in the <laughs> caliphate, don't you? I mean, compared with this, this is brilliant. You must be absolutely... And you can sort of tell from his account that he's thinking, this is, this is pretty awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah it's, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really weird... I think it's so weird, isn't it? It's such a weird story. And, and it's sort of... I have, uh, you get this so much from Neil Price's books that our image of kind of Viking religion is all very kind of jolly and it's kind of Thor and his hammer and Odin and all well, this stuff. I, I, but actually I'm, this I'm, is the darkness. I'm not sure about that. It. I mean, all the, um, all the, all the main gods are, are, are kind of terrifyingly phallic. Yeah. But the way in which it's, it's portrayed to children, Tom, and the way it's presented. I suppose. The Marvel I suppose. Version of you know, but, but, but Thor, I mean, Thor is a, a serial rapist. Um, the hammer is obviously, very phallic. Yeah. Uh, Odin is always raping. Uh, yeah. Frey, I mean, he has you know, the statue of him at Uppsala in, in Sweden. He has an absolutely enormous phallus. Um, yeah, it's unsettling, I think. And this story is incredibly, I mean, it's it's unbelievably rich and interesting for historians, archaeologists, anthropologists, and so on, because it ma- makes sense of a lot of the burials that you find yeah. All those kind of dismembered corpses of of animals and yeah yeah exactly and the weird things you find um but it gives you a sense of you know the sort of the 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 jolly adventure story in rosemary Sutcliffe kind of way in which so many of these viking Mm. stories are told actually misses out just how cruel and violent a world uh, and strange and 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 unsettling a world it was anyway well i I, you know and i think i think that um you know you know what i'm going to say now that um, it's about cricket. The, 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 the conversion of the Vikings to Christianity is it, it removes them from a world that I think to us is unimaginably strange. Yeah, because we bad. remain in the in the kind of the, the, the moral ethical world that Christianity gave gave us. Um, you know, or you know, Islam as well. I mean, they're they're you know, Ibn Fadlan's sense of of kind of the sense of the strangeness and the horror of it is is to that extent ours. And, and that world to us, I think, is very, very remote and difficult and strange and, and weird. Yeah. And so the process by which um, the Rus end up becoming Christian is very, very kind of important. Uh, as, as that passage from from Putin that I read at the start of this episode. OK, well, I think I think that that's enough for today's episode. And, and clearly we, <laughs> we, th- we thought we were going to get all this done in one episode. We're not. Um, I think that that uh, tomorrow we should um, we should go to the Dnieper. We should go to the founding of Kiev. We should look at um, in a bit more detail the relationship of the Rus to Constantinople and the process by which um, the Kievan Rus became Christian. So we will see you back tomorrow. Bye.